I would invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. As David reminded us this morning, it always is a super time when we can gather as God's people and study His Word together. Uh, We'll be looking at chapter 3, verse 1, and reading through uh, this particular narrative, chapter 4, verse 17. It's a bit of a lengthy passage tonight, but I think it's important to consider the entire dialogue between the Lord and Moses as the Lord appears to him from the burning bush in the desert of Horeb. So let's pray before reading God's Word. Father, we are grateful for time that you've given to us this Sunday evening to gather again as your called out people and to give our attention to your word. We acknowledge our need for you, our dependence upon you to understand this text and even to apply it to our lives and pray for clarity of thoughts and hearts that are submissive to this truth. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs." Now, a pervasive theme that we find in narratives such as this is the gracious nature of God. Our God showing himself to be patient and merciful, kind and forgiving. Now, this book of Exodus is a book that was written by Moses under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you are writing such unflattering things about your own life, things that in many ways make you look weak, Well, that in itself is evidence of grace, isn't it? Evidence that Moses is able to write such things because he understands God's grace. He has been a recipient of such grace and favor. For what kind of person is going to write about his own failures so openly unless he has come to understand grace and the reality that salvation is of the Lord? And I think that when we come across narratives like this, which record weaknesses and frailties of God-appointed leaders, it simply adds to our conviction that we are reading historical, accurate historical events. If you were going to create a religion from scratch, if you were going to make up leaders that you were supposed to follow, who were supposed to be models for you, you would never come up with a story like this. It's narratives like this that show the weakness of man 
the reluctance of God-appointed leaders. But of course, the focus is not meant to be upon Moses so much as it is upon God, the faithful one who equips those whom he calls to service. And so in this back and forth dialogue between the Lord and Moses, the Lord first states what he will do. Moses responds with an objection, while the Lord graciously and patiently answers those objections. If we were to summarize Moses' objections in this dialogue with the Lord, we could say that they are self-centered objections. Who am I? I am weak in speech. They will not listen to me. And God responds in two ways. In his kindness, he answers Moses' objections. And two, he challenges Moses to reorient his paradigm, if you will, to alter the way in which he's viewing the world. Moses needs a God-centered rather than a man-centered view of reality. And so the lesson for him, I think the lesson for us all, is get your eyes off of yourself and your inadequacies. Because of course you are inadequate. Of course you can do nothing on your own. Look to the Lord, to His power, to His promises, to His faithfulness, to do what He says He will do. And so let's start tonight following the narrative through and consider Moses' questions, objections that he raises to the Lord, and then God's loving, wise, and patient responses. The first objection that Moses raises is in chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, in isolation by itself, if this were the only question that Moses asked, it doesn't really seem like a bad question. It certainly sounds legitimate. It certainly sounds like it's a humble question. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I've been out here in the desert shepherding sheep for the last 40 years. I have no credentials. I have nothing to offer. I have no authority. And perhaps when the Lord tells Moses that he is to go into Pharaoh and to speak these words demanding the deliverance of his people, maybe he envisions himself standing there in the royal palace as he remembers it from those first 40 years of his life with the symbols of power and might all around in that throne room. Guards, attendants, and advisors all surrounding the Pharaoh. And then Moses pictures himself walking into that setting, standing there all alone, wearing the tattered garments of a shepherd with his weathered, hardened skin and calloused hands. He sees right from the beginning, from a human perspective, that this is a foolish idea. So what's the problem, if any, with Moses at this point in his conversation with the Lord? Well, it's a question that comes because of the failure to really listen to what God has just said to him. It's a question that flows from seeds of unbelief, an unbelief that just grows as the narrative progresses. You see, God has just said in verse 7, I have seen the affliction of my people. I know their sufferings. I have come down and will usher them into a spacious land as I deliver them. I have seen their oppression, and I am going to send you as my representative. Again, it is God who is at the center here of this great and mighty act of deliverance. And an appropriate application of God's word is to believe. 
to believe that God's word is true, to believe that his word is trustworthy. Now, that sounds simple enough. Believe God's word. But as we go on tonight, we'll see how a lack of belief is not only Moses' problem, but oftentimes our problem as well. And a lack of belief is really fundamental to much of the struggles that we go through in this life. And yet the Lord's response is kind and patient and gracious. It's not a flat-out rebuke to Moses. Are you kidding me, Moses? Did you not hear what I just said? It doesn't matter who you are. All that matters is what I will do. But the Lord doesn't respond that way. Verse 12, I will be with you. You must have faith. You must trust me. And the sign that I will make good upon my promises is that you will bring the people out. You will return to this exact spot. And collectively, as a redeemed community, you will give your worship to the Lord. And yet Moses feels as though he needs more data here. And so he raises another question in verse 13. If I go to the people of Israel and I tell them, the God of our forefathers has sent me and they ask your name, what shall I tell them? And so the first question, who am I that I should go and do this? And the Lord answers. The second question, who are you? What if they ask about your power and authority to make good on such promises? And how does the Lord respond to this question? Well, it's a quite lengthy response in which the Lord gives revelation of his name as the great I am, the self-existent and the eternal one who is in need of nothing outside of himself. He speaks as the covenant God who is the God of the living and the God of their forefathers who have already died. He is the one who will make good upon promises that he has made to his chosen people. And not only is he going to make good upon those promises that he made to their forefathers in generations past, not only is he going to make good upon those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the Lord adds to those promises, doesn't he? Further promises in verse 17. I promise that I will bring you up out of this affliction. And here is the land that will be yours. It will be a good and spacious land that provides for your needs. He promises that the people will listen to Moses. He promises in verse 18 that the elders will hear your voice. They will heed it. They will believe the things that you tell them. But then the Lord goes on in verse 19 to indicate that Pharaoh will not listen and will not let the people go. The Lord already has purposed in his mind the plagues that will be poured out upon the Egyptians. And he indicates in verse 20 that these mighty wonders will compel Pharaoh to release them from slavery. And then upon that release from the land of slavery, the people of Israel will plunder the Egyptians. It will be a military-type victory over them. And in fact, it will be the lowly women who will do the plundering. This is a task typically reserved for the military. But of course, Israel has no armed forces. It's the Lord God himself who fights for his people. And the Egyptians will be so decimated that the lowly women will do the plundering. They will simply ask for the riches of Egypt and those things will be given to them. And this comes to fulfillments in chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, when the women plunder the land. So while the Lord answers Moses' question, at the same time, much of what he says here in verses 17, 16 and 17 is a reiteration of what he's already said to Moses. 
the Lord knows Moses needs to hear it again, just as we need to hear again and again the foundational truths of Scripture. God is patient with his people. He is patient with Moses. He's shepherding Moses, isn't he? Leading him along rather than pushing him with an impatient hand. Then as we get to chapter 4, verse 1, Moses raises another objection. He's still not convinced. Not convinced that this is going to work. Not convinced that he's the right man for this task. And here Moses is not even asking a question really. It's, it's more of an assertion. They won't believe me. They won't believe that God really has appeared to me. Maybe in his mind's eye he's picturing them saying, It's been generations since God has spoken to our forefathers. Why do you think that he came to you to break all of those years of silence and speak to you of all people, tending sheep in the desert? If they have any recollection of who Moses is at all, they will remember him as a murderer who killed an Egyptian and who was a wanted man. What sort of credentials is that for leadership? And it's here in this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, that we begin to really get at the unbelief within Moses' heart. The first couple of questions seemed legitimate. Who am I? Who are you? And the Lord answered, and those answers were sufficient. And the calling now is for Moses to believe. Now, the irony here is that he objects, presuming that the people will not believe his word when he doesn't even believe God's word. God had just told him in chapter 3, verse 18, they will listen to your voice. God has already spoken and answered this objection. Are you going to believe God's word? And so there's a lack of confidence in the truth and trustworthy nature of God's word. Moses is considered one of the greatest leaders in human history. But at this point in his life, there is great weakness and doubt. He is hesitant and afraid. He doesn't want to go back to Egypt. He has made a comfortable life for himself here with his sheep in the desert. Now think for a moment. Imagine that you are in a position of authority, charged with the task of hiring someone for a job. And you brought a person in for an interview who told you or who you thought would be a good candidate. And imagine that person, from the very first thing that they said, that they are the wrong person for this job. You don't want me. You want to hire someone else. It would be ludicrous for you to hire that person. From a human point of view, this is a foolish choice for a leader. And this is a foolish course of action. And Moses tries to reason with God, telling him as much. I can't do it. And no one else is going to accept me either. So is God convinced? Does God agree? You know, you're right, Moses. You are kind of weak and frail. Maybe I do need to get someone else to lead the people. It is a pretty big job. I guess I didn't think about what a big job it really was. Instead, God's response continues to be patient as he shepherds Moses. Here are three signs to confirm my appointment of you as leader, as mediator. Here are three things that you need to look at as confirmation that I have appointed you. And these three signs will be used to show the people as confirmation that I have chosen you and I am with you. Your heart is Voss says that God uses the ordinary 
to do the extraordinary. Things that will act as a sign not only to the people, but a sign to Moses as well, helping address his unbelief. God is to be trusted. God is to be believed. Now, a sign by its very nature is symbolic. A sign points to something else besides itself. And a sign is not simply a raw display of power. If God simply wanted to put his power on display, there are many more marvelous things that he could have done. But these are signs that are revelatory in nature, showing, yes, God's power, but showing more than that, showing his authority and showing his presence with his people. We could say that these are theologically loaded signs. Now, the first sign involves a common shepherd's staff. He tells Moses to throw it upon the ground and it becomes a serpent. Now, Moses runs from it either because it was such a startling thing or because it's a poisonous snake or both. Then he is to pick up the snake by the tail and as he does, it returns to a staff. What does this sign convey? What is it pointing to? Well, as a shepherd's staff, it is a symbol of lowliness and unimportance. Yet it will bring the world power to its knees. And it is a sign that the Lord is bringing about salvation. Just as God will enable the lowly women to plunder the land, the lowly shepherd to deliver, a common staff to judge, he uses the foolishness in the eyes of the world to show his strength. The foolishness in the eyes of the world to bring about his plan of redemption. In the Egyptian court, the staff would be a symbol of authority and power and leadership. The staff of Pharaoh would be intricately made and uh, covered with jewels. Most scholars say it would have had the head of a cobra as a sign of power and might. And yet a common shepherd's staff has more power than that intricately made staff of the Egyptian ruler. And why? Why? Of course, not because of the staff itself, but the one behind the staff. This is ultimately a clash of worldviews. It is a conflict between the true God and the false gods of the Egyptians, the gods that are fabricated for they don't even exist. The Lord will be victorious over the power of the Egyptians. Now, of course, every little boy knows that it's foolish to pick up a snake by the tail, But by telling telling Moses to pick it up by the tail, Moses must exercise faith in the living God. It's a lack of belief that is Moses' problem throughout this conversation with God. And so here God is graciously, kindly helping Moses to develop faith in his word. We read later in Exodus chapter 4 and then later in chapter 7 that this sign of the staff to the snake is performed first for the leaders of Israel... And then later, of course, in the court of the Pharaoh. Throughout the Exodus journey, Moses' staff continues to be an important symbol of God's power, authority, and presence. The staff is used as an instrument of judgment during the plagues that are poured out upon the Egyptians. It's the staff that strikes the Red Sea as the Lord parts the sea, enabling his people to walk across on dry ground, leading to their deliverance. It's the staff that strikes the rock as life-giving water pours out for the people to drink as they are in the wilderness. And so this common, 
ordinary shepherd's staff is no longer to be used to tend sheep, but it now belongs to the Lord. It is a staff of the Lord, a symbol of authority and power, even, again, a symbol of God's presence that He will be with His people, that He is the one who is shepherding them, lovingly guiding them, protecting them, nurturing them through those years of wilderness wandering. And notice the second sign given to Moses in verses 6 and 7. He puts his hand inside of his cloak and, of course, is surprised and startled that when he pulls it out, it is leprous like snow. We're not exactly sure what kind of illness this was. There were various forms of skin diseases categorized as leprosy. But all of them would ultimately have the same effect, causing the flesh to rot, to, to waste away, and to die, to fall off. All of them were extremely contagious It would make the person who had that leprous disease unclean. So whether for the Israelites or the Egyptians, leprosy was a sign of judgment, a symbol of being cursed. But notice again that Moses is to act in faith. He is to believe the word of God by taking the now leprous hand, which is highly contagious, and putting it back inside of his cloak against his skin. He takes the diseased hand of flesh and puts it against the part of his body that is still clean. Picking a snake up by the tail, putting a diseased hand against your clean body, both are counterintuitive. Both require faith. But instead of the diseased flesh infecting the rest of him, instead the hand is healed. And so the thing that is contagious, the thing that spreads, is not the defilements of weakness of man, but it's the holiness of God. And later, upon deliverance from Egypt, God comes and dwells in the midst of His people. And it's the presence of the Lord among His people that demands their response of holy living. It is the holy presence of the Lord among a defiled people that is infectious, not the other way around. The Lord alone can heal. The Lord alone can purify The Lord alone can make holy. The Lord alone can restore a defiled people to live in the presence of a holy God. But if belief is still lacking, the Lord gives Moses a third sign. Now this third sign requires Moses' absolute faith. He tells him that he is to take water from the Nile and to pour it on the ground and watch it become blood. Well, he's in Horeb. That's not anywhere close to the Nile. And so he has to believe God that this is a sign that can only occur as he goes back to Egypt. Well, what's the significance of this sign? This sign that becomes the first plague upon the Egyptians. Well, to turn the Nile to blood is to bring death to the life-giving streams of Egypt. The inundation that would occur when the Waters of the Nile would flood the surrounding plains, bringing life-giving nutrients to the agricultural needs of the land of Egypt. The Nile had godlike attributes as it brought life for all. And if the Nile were threatened, then all of the life in the region would be threatened. And so in this sign, God is asserting His sovereign power over His creation. Well, at the same time, exposing the impotence of the gods of the Egyptians. 
And so you see these three signs are given to Moses in response to the objection that he raises in 4 verse 1. They won't listen. And so God's response is these signs are to speak, creating listening ears on the part of the people. But still, this is not enough for Moses. He raises another objection in verse 10. I'm not eloquent. I have literally a heavy tongue. I don't know what to say. Perhaps Moses thinks of his rhetoric and diplomatic skills that he learned so long ago in Egypt, he can hardly recall how to articulate himself. Most of his conversations over the last 40 years have been with sheep. While it might seem as though Moses is being humble, we're beginning to uncover the resistance within a heart of unbelief. Someone has said, in a sense, this is an attack upon God. I have speech problems that you could take them away if you wanted to. You have spoken to me, but I still have issues with my communication. And look at God's response. Nothing about you matters, Moses. Remember who I am. I am the creator of all. I made your mouth. I will be with that mouth. I'm not going to leave you alone, but I will be with you in that hostile environment helping you. Now go, verse 12. I am in control, and it has nothing to do with your skills and abilities. And finally, in verse 13, Moses' last objection, we really get at the heart of what's going on here. The Lord has peeled back the layers, uncovering the underlying disbelief and the problem really within his heart that he just doesn't want to do it. It's unpleasant. I'm comfortable here. It's going to be too difficult. Although God has appeared to him, it's a failure to see God. Although God has spoken to him, it's a failure to listen to God. Although God has made promises to Moses and to his covenant people, it's a failure to trust God. Although God has given him signs, it's a failure to see the adequacy and the sufficiency of God's revelation. Moses is simply too focused upon himself. Moses is putting his foot down. No, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm inadequate to the task. Send whomever you wish. This is what we literally read in the Hebrew. Send whoever you want, just not me. But notice the Lord's response. Well, it's a response in which there is anger kindled against Moses, and rightly so. It's a response to Moses in which there continues to be grace and kindness to him as the Lord leads him along in the task that he has called him to. Notice verse 14. Aaron, your brother, is already on the way to help you. I've anticipated your objections. I already know what you're going to say, and I have graciously and patiently provided help for you. Moses is not relieved of his calling. He is still going to go and do what God says. In the end, it's a losing battle to try to fight against the word of the Lord. And you see, what Moses is gradually learning through the Lord's patient instruction is that it's not about him. It's never been about Moses. Moses has been focusing upon himself and all of his weaknesses. I am ill-equipped. I'm not up to the task. I don't want to. Instead, he needs to focus upon the Lord. I have made promises. 
I have bound my very nature to fulfill what I have said. I know the suffering of my people. I will deliver them. I will be with your mouth. I will accomplish this. Your false humility is really pride. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto the greatness of God. Salvation is of the Lord. You see, what Moses needs is not to be built up. He doesn't need a rhetoric refresher class. He doesn't need a personal life coach to follow him on the way back to Egypt, whispering in his ear, you can do it, Moses. You're a good person. Believe in yourself. Instead, every response God gives to Moses' objections are theocentric, God-centered responses. You don't need to be built up. In fact, you're thinking too highly of yourself raising these objections in the first place. Of course you're inadequate. Why would you think otherwise? You are my mouthpiece. You are my instrument. I am sufficient. I can do all things. God is a God who speaks and a God who acts. Everything that he says to Moses comes to fulfillment. From the belief of the, of the leaders of Israel that he speaks to, to the plundering of the land, to the signs that are given to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, then driving the people out of the land, everything comes to fulfillment. He speaks and then he acts to make good upon his speech. His words are as good as his activity. He can do nothing other than make good upon his promises. What comfort, what comfort to us and what exhortation towards us when we do not believe. So what do we learn with all this? Well, I think this is a text that exposes our own lack of trust in God's Word. The tendency that perhaps we have uh, towards a lack of obedience to do the things that He has already told us to do. And this entire conversation that the Lord has with Moses He's really telling him the same thing over and over. I am God. I am sufficient. I will redeem. Trust in me. Obey. Believe. And how often do we hear the same thing over and over again from God's word and continue to resist in our own life? How many of you, when you face a difficult juncture in life, have ever thought, if the Lord would just speak to me and tell me what to do, I would do it. If I just had that level of clarity, I would know how to obey and I would never question him again. Well, no, you wouldn't. God speaks directly to Moses and he flat out says to God's face, I don't want to do it. He has already spoken clearly to us in the pages of Scripture. And when we uncover the other objections that we raise, the heart of our response is really the same. I don't want to. I don't trust you. I don't want to do what you tell me to do. Now, we may come up with what we think of as reasonable objections, which are really just elaborate excuses to fail to do what God tells us to do. I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't have the ability. I don't understand what to do. How can I forgive such a horrible offense against me? How can I extend mercy to another when he'll just do it again? You just don't understand the difficulty of my situation. Don't refuse because of who you are, but obey and trust and believe because of who he is. 
See, we will confess that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but functionally we live oftentimes as though our enjoyment of life is primary, and if I'm enjoying my life, then and only then can I glorify God. But it's not about us. It's about the Lord. Everything is about Him. Our words, our thoughts, our actions, the choices that we make, everything is to be about Him. Puritan Thomas Manton said, Our desire ought to be that God be glorified in our condition, whatever it is. If He wills for us to be rich and full, that He might be glorified in our bounty. If He wills for us to be poor and low, that He may be glorified in our patience. If He will have us healthy, that He may be glorified in our labor. If He will have us sick, that He may be glorified in our pain. If He will have us live, that He may be glorified in our lives. If He will have us die, that He may be glorified in our deaths. Now finally, what we see in the weakness of Moses is the need that we all have for a greater than Moses. An all-sufficient Savior and mediator. The Lord Jesus did not need a pep talk to do the will of His Father in heaven, did He? He needs no special word of assurance, for he believes without doubt and has a faith that never falters. Even in his darkest hour in the garden, he says, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He doesn't need signs to reassure him, but he performs signs to point to his own power and authority. And in him we find forgiveness for our own faltering hearts. In Him we find the one who will help us by His grace to believe in His word of truth. See, the matter of belief is something that runs throughout the narrative. Will Moses finally believe? Will the people believe? Will Pharaoh believe? God says that they will believe. Do you believe Him? Belief is so critical for Christian living to drive out fear doubt, and even rebellion from our own life. And just as the Lord patiently and kindly leads Moses to trust in Him, may we see such patience and kindness leading us to repentance. As we read in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? May God take the eternal truth of his word and write it upon the hearts of his people.